Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, we're back again with Dr. Corey Waller, Managing Director of the Health Management Associates Institute on Addiction. You are a board certified and actively practicing addiction doctor with a lot of experience and well-respected in uh, addiction-related circles. An absolute delight as an educator. Uh, So today we are going to talk about a little bit of addiction medicine vis-a-vis USMLE practice questions. So we have a 40-year-old male with a history of alcohol use disorder admitted to the hospital for skin lax following an MVA. Urgent care is given with intravenous fluid resuscitation and sutures where required. On physical, his blood pressure is within normal limits as well as the rest of his vital signs. After five hours, the nurse goes to draw blood and the patient refuses, citing restlessness and agitation. The patient yells and states that his heart is pounding and he would not let anyone come close to him. He has a previous history of hepatitis C that has been treated. And our question here is, what is the next step in management? A, is administer lithium. B, administer oxazepam. C, administer lactulose. Or D, administer diazepam. All right, Dr. Waller. What would you do for this patient with alcohol use disorder coming into the ED? Well, first, I would, uh, before giving a drug, you always want to do a reassessment. So this is the one thing that, you know, you won't come up on these questions, but this is a person who had normal vital signs upon arrival. Um, and, and what you want to first think about is, you know, what is the pathology that could be happening here? And I think what this question is going after is someone with a history of alcohol use disorder um, following a motor vehicle accident. This is a person who probably um, was intoxicated at the time of the accident or, um, you know, was otherwise altered. So in, in the stem, they planted the alcohol use disorder as the thing you're focused on. The lacerations are a red herring. They could have set a sprained ankle. They could have set a broken leg. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The, the, the main focus that they're going after is alcohol use disorder. And with that, um, the next thing is a description of something that happens to people with alcohol use disorder. If they're intoxicated, they're pretty chill. They might be slurring their words. You may um, have seen this, uh, those of you listening uh, to some of your compatriots on a Friday night after your testing phase, but the, uh, um, they, they might not be uh, hyperactive. They might be hypoactive. That would be intoxication. So what they're going after here is this uh, restlessness and agitation um, for there. So with that, um, what you want to start thinking about is, all right, so it looks like it, alcohol use disorder, probably withdrawal, 
Um, he's agitated. He feels like his heart is pounding. If we measured his vital signs, he very well may be found to be tachycardic. Um, and if he's tachycardic, you start adding up on what we call a, a, um, a CEWA score, which is the score we utilize to uh, evaluate alcohol withdrawal. And so if, uh, if we look for what we want to do to treat that, um, lithium does not treat that, right? So lithium is utilized for, generally speaking, bipolar disorder, which doesn't seem to be the case here. Uh, lactulose is what you're going to identify and give to someone with uh, liver failure. Um, and then you have oxazepam and diazepam. And in your brain, you might be thinking, well, they're the same, right? Because diazepam breaks down and one of the byproducts is oxazepam from pharmacological pathways. But there's the little piece that you have to remember, and it's the second order question. And that next piece is the recognition that diazepam requires the liver to break it down. And they said this person had had hepatitis C. So alcohol use disorder plus hepatitis C equals liver dysfunction as far as the question is concerned. And so in a person with liver dysfunction, you wouldn't want to give diazepam because it requires a breakdown in the liver in the P450 system. So what you would give is the final um, medication, oxazepam, which is a benzodiazepine that would help with the withdrawal symptoms for alcohol, but would not put stress on the liver. So it's, it's a multiple ordered question when you start to look at it. Wow, that was great. So I have a few uh, follow-ups on this. So number one, a patient has a history of treated hepatitis C. So I feel like they do want to imply um, an issue with the liver here, but it probably could have been a little bit more... Um, a little clearer if they maybe showed some elevated LFTs or just said history of hepatitis C. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because what, like 20% of people who get infected with hep C themselves will clear the virus. And then we have treatments now that are um, very effective at curing hep C. Yeah, if it was only hepatitis C and not alcohol use disorder together, then absolutely. I mean, so this is a, this is a USMLE step one question. Oh, so <laughs> no, and so, but I think that that's the key. Is is that? Uh, but you're you're exactly right. If they had just listed hepatitis C as the side effect, but didn't list alcohol use disorder, and let's say they had a seizure, and you wanted to give them something to, for the seizure, and they gave you a choice of alprazolam and diazepam. So you would choose alprazolam because they had a history of hepatitis C and you don't know if they're going to be able to break it down. And this one, and alprazolam doesn't require it. So it's the same basic question. Um, but with the addition of alcohol use disorder, you just assume that they're going after a risk of liver dysfunction. Yeah. Now, when you take step two and step three, this question gets ludicrous. Um, this is a step, a step one question. It's a ludicrous question because you're not going to give any of these medications without doing an actual evaluation. Yeah. And, and that actual evaluation would be uh, laboratory studies uh, that you talked about, as well as a physical exam and, and a reevaluation of vital signs. I had a, uh, um, a professor, Dr. Mark Zwanger in Philadelphia, who every time that I would present and forget to uh, give him vital signs to start with, he would look <laughs> at me and he goes, what are we missing? Read my mind. And, and I go, oh, vital signs. He goes, you know, vital signs are vital. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, vital signs are important. So if they give those to you twice or follow up, that means they're focusing on that. If they don't, then we're just assuming it's a, a, a condition that we need to treat. Gotcha. Well, what about the fifth vital sign? No, I'm just kidding. We won't get into that uh, uh, right yeah, now. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into uh, that one. Uh, uh, the one we can't measure. Yeah. Yeah. The... Uh, 
this illustrates a, a good uh, point as well, because I was anchoring on that hepatitis C and totally forgot, spaced out, that this was a question about a patient with a history of alcohol use disorder. And on an exam, that is the exact type of error that can make you get something wrong or just sit there for too long thinking about something. So I think uh, what, what you did here was... Uh, good in that uh, before moving on to the answer choices, um, go back, summarize, like pull out the pertinent positives, negatives, and then move on to addressing the um, uh, interrogative uh, and the answer choices. So how about this one? You ever hear the mnemonic outside the liver for the benzos that are metabolized outside the liver, oxazepam, tenazepam, and lorazepam? Uh, no, I I was never a big fan of uh, mnemonics. I know a lot of people like to use them. I, uh, I, however, never did because mnemonics are good for taking a test. They're really bad for treating patients. <laughs> and that you should be able to... Principally because you mentioned the oxa or the alprazolam thing just a, a moment ago about that's... Yeah. That's included. Yeah, it's like you never want to count. You never want to use your fingers to count in front of a patient. Um, like, was it one, two, three? You, you never want to do that and you never <laughs> want to... Uh, you know, kind of under your breath, list a mnemonic for figuring out which medication you want to give them. So don't catch yourself doing that in front of a patient. They, that yeah. tends to create a trust barrier. <laughs> what was that? Oh, nothing. That's right. So in this question, we have a 61-year-old female with chronic back pain and depression who's brought in by EMS when her daughter called and said the patient was not waking up. EMS found her to respond to painful stimuli, but not to voice she has pinpoint pupils, her pulse ox is 85%, and her respiratory rate is decreased. IV access is established, and she's given naloxone, 0.4 milligrams, following which the patient becomes more responsive, with her vital signs improving. On examination, the above is confirmed in a total of eight submillimeter brown dots are noted in the left antecubital fossa. When questioned, the medics state they had no difficulty obtaining IV access and made no attempts anywhere on the left arm. On magnification, the dots appear to be tiny areas of raised brown crusts. If a crust is displaced, a small pink depression in the skin is seen. On questioning, the patient says this is from a, quote, rash, then says it is from, quote, lab tests. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the rash? Is it A, dermatitis, B, hyperpigmentation, C, injection drug use, or D, phlebotomy for sampling? Now, I don't think that's that great of a question here, but... Uh, it's pretty... So it's an interestingly stigmatizing question, but the... Uh, right. Uh, but if we think about it, you know, dermatitis is, uh, um, generally speaking, you're not going to be able to unroof a dermatitis. So if we're just thinking about it from a uh, dermatological standpoint... And uh, as you start to look at, um, is it going to be hyperpigmentation? Well, you can't peel off um, a nevi, you know, in, in those areas. So generally speaking, it's not going to be that. Um, so what we're left with is um, a decision between, well, we know that it's from puncture wounds. Now, whether or not that's lab-based phlebotomy, because uh, you're going to feel really crappy if you walk up to a patient and you assume that uh, they're an injection drug user, but they're getting treatment for cancer and they just happen to take too much of their pain medication and they woke up from this. So with this, what they're getting at, though, is that EMS had to be called for a person who was unconscious. They woke up after naloxone. 
So um, ultimately they had a, uh, I wouldn't quite call it overdose because uh, uh, their pulse ox was low, but they hadn't completely you know, arrested. But you would, you would say they were intoxicated to somnolence, uh, at which point they needed you know, to be woken up. But at the same time, because they gave you that history, you assume that they're going after a diagnosis of, of a disease entity, which is what's going to push you toward uh, the diagnosis of injection drug use, um, you know, from a sense, so heroin or other uh, forms of that. And then uh, phlebotomy for sampling, generally speaking, is uh, not going to be all over the place on the same arm. You would hope not. I know when I first learned to draw blood. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now, maybe if I did it at this point, yeah, it might look like that. But but I, I love how this question's eight submillimeter brown dots noted in the antecubital fossa, uh, which uh, when, uh, you know, essentially scratched. Um, yeah. If you do a small pink depression. So like scabs. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And if you document like that, then you are perfect purpose-built for internal medicine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I, you did say this is an interesting uh, stigmatizing question here. We're, we're going to have Elena Balasanova on uh, from, I believe she's at UNMC and does a lot of work in fighting stigma and the language of addiction. But what are your thoughts? Uh, why did you say this is an interesting stigmatizing question? Well, because they didn't give you the ability to make a diagnosis from this. Um, the diagnosis of addiction is, uh, you know, there are 11 criteria for opioid use disorder, um, and none of those are really met here. Um, because, and the interesting piece is, is the way they wrote the question, it shows a person who's not physically dependent on opioids because they got naloxone and they didn't go into immediate withdrawal. They just woke up, which is exactly what you find when somebody is not physically dependent on opioids, but you give them naloxone, it just reverses the opioid and they wake up, but they don't have overt withdrawal because they haven't actually had the physiologic changes in the locus ceruleus to create a central norepinephrine dump uh, that creates the vast majority of opioid withdrawal. So when they did that, it, it's interesting. And so you could make an argument that the fact that when they woke up, they didn't have any withdrawal, that maybe it was lab draws and they were just given some medication and they had recently been sick postoperatively um, and doing it. So without more answers, I think you could go both ways on this one, but um, they immediately, without any actual diagnostics of opioid use disorder, went to injection drug use. And so that that's it felt very uh, pejorative in that in that sense. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that. And uh, and that's a, a good kind of pearl on naloxone. I think a lot of us don't necessarily uh, think about that, especially. And I guess that's why we're doing this series, because you only get about two hours of addiction-specific training um, and didactics uh, during your undergraduate medical education. 45-year-old man presents a clinic for follow-up. He is prescribed fentanyl for pain he suffers after a motor vehicle accident one year ago. He claims his pain is intense and uh, located in the back. He has relentless headaches. He says he's not currently taking any medication. He has multiple Band-Aids on his arm, normal-sized pupils. What is the best next step in the management of this patient? We're not asking for the second best. Best step in management is A, prescribe fentanyl, B, inquire about possible drug use, C, referral to a drug rehabilitation program, or D, discuss alternative options such as buprenorphine or methadone. Well, this one's probably similar vein. 
Yeah, but I think that it's an important as far as how you structure the intervention and evaluation of somebody. And so they have back pain, uh, relentless headaches. And so back pain is, a, is something that needs to be worked up. It's the most common pain that we have, um, along with abdominal pain, you know, as a general sense. And so with, from a musculoskeletal standpoint, back pain is really common. And so uh, uh, it used to be common that people with chronic back pain would be prescribed opioids. And fentanyl is a highly potent opioid, full agonist, that uh, typically is delivered through a patch. And that patch uh, gives you three days worth of uh, the medication. And you change those patches over. Well, really, after about a week and a half to 10 days, you become physically dependent on that fentanyl. And if you pull that patch off and it runs out, you can go and you can have some, uh, some withdrawal. Now, the issue is over time, uh, we get what we call hyperalgesia. Uh, with these highly potent opioids. And so fentanyl is particularly risky in this space. And so over time, utilizing fentanyl uh, will actually raise um, the body's pain inputs. So your ascending tract from your dorsal horn, um, your spinal mesencephalic, and, um, and, and those tracts are actually going to increase signal intensity to try to overcome the blockade by opioids, both at the dorsal horn and the periaqueductal gray. And so when that occurs, you start getting too much pain signal coming up the ascending track and not enough dampening signal on the descending tracks. So therefore, if you remove the fentanyl, even if you're not in withdrawal, you can have relentless, horrible pain, not because you have something generating that pain, but because you've now cranked up your pain signaling pathways to the point where you have hyperalgesia. So things hurt in a relentless fashion. So these relentless headaches. So one of the things that we identify as a person who is taken off of long-term opioids, has hyperalgesia, and initially has relentless pain and seeks any pain relief they can. And in many times, that's other drugs. And that could be taking somebody's Percocet. It could be IV injection of other meds uh, because they're panicking. It hurts. It sucks. They're in like anxiety-provoked uh, uh, world and pain. Um, and so it's a pretty bad place to be. So if that person shows back up to your uh, clinic or is in the hospital for another reason, you want to start with what we should for everything, screening. And that screening is a structured verbal screening tool like the National Institute on Drug Addiction for questions. Um, and if they screen positive, then we do an assessment. And you can do a brief assessment uh, that allows for us to very quickly, using something like a NIDA modified assist, do a very uh, quick, brief assessment, eight to 10 minutes, and then we have an answer. And if they have a diagnosis of addiction or a high risk for addiction, then that's a person that we would want to refer to uh, treatment because referring to uh, a rehabilitation is like sending somebody to heart cath without doing an EKG if you don't do an assessment, right? You're like, oh, you got chest pain, send them to heart cath. No, you do an EKG, a physical exam and a troponin. And the addiction equivalent to that is a standardized verbal screening and brief assessment tool. And then once you identify the disease, then you push it on. And what they're getting at here is what is the next best thing to do? And the first thing that you should be doing is assessing for the risk that they may have. And the biggest risk for this person is accidental overdose from consistent drug use that's not via the prescribed modality. So with that, um, inquire about possible drug use is absolutely what you want to do. Um, prescribing fentanyl is, uh, is not um, what you, you want to do. Uh, discuss alternative options such as buprenorphine or methadone. So this would be the not next best thing, but if 
you ask the questions and they meet for a diagnosis of opioid use disorder, then those are viable treatments for um, opioid use disorder, buprenorphine or methadone. And you can have those conversations, but you shouldn't have those conversations before you screen and assess for the disease, because that also is uh, a bit condescending to, you know, for somebody to come in and they have some band-aids on and you're like, dude, you want some buprenorphine? <laughs> It's a, it's a little early out of the gates. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the thought, but you know, you got to do things in an order for yep, a reason. Absolutely. I like that. So, uh, one question, follow up on, uh, fentanyl itself. So some patients are telling me in the opiate use disorder clinic, I had planned to go on Vivitrol, which is uh, long acting, uh, naltrexone injections that block opioids, yep. but I for 10, actually this has happened two or three times. I had not done any sort of illicit opioid in seven to 10 days and pretty much everything around here is fentanyl. But when I went to test, this was one patient, I did a urine drug screen and I was still positive for fentanyl. So they wouldn't give it to me. And then um, two others reported to me that they had a you know precipitated withdrawal type picture um, despite not having any opioids on board and basically just being heroin slash fentanyl users i i can't make sense of that from what i read uh in in you know the literature um is is there a good way to understand that is fentanyl just you know its own animal um does that make sense no so so this is with fentanyl it is uh, by itself one of the shortest acting opioids that we have, yep. um, which is why it has to be in a patch in order to be able to uh, do it. So if you, if I give somebody a dose of fentanyl on a Monday morning, I'll find it Tuesday, but probably not on Wednesday. Um, so it's out of the system pretty quickly. Um, however, when you have a patch, depending on the dose of that patch, 100 micrograms, uh, you know, or so, it sits in the stratum corneum you know, that uppermost layer. And even if you pull off the patch, it can slowly and consistently seep into the system um, for a little bit of time. And it also, uh, it's not highly fat bound, not like methadone is. So methadone, you can be on methadone for a year, stop it, and it'll be in your system for sometimes a month as it slowly, that volume of distribution starts to pull it out into the uh, serum and then into the urine. But, the, um, but ultimately with fentanyl, if they said, I haven't used fentanyl in 10 days and their urine toxicological study is positive for fentanyl, there's a truth gap in that conversation. And that truth gap, uh, you know, would be that it, within the last three days, they've had something with fentanyl in it. And one of the pieces that we are finding, now this is probably not going to be on the test, but this is a reality that you should understand, is that um, anybody who's vaping um, marijuana or tinctures like uh, um, THC uh, tinctures, and or most of the marijuana coming across now that's high potency is actually laced with some form of fentanyl. And so they may not know uh, that they're utilizing it, but about 80% of the products that we find that are vaped marijuana um, include some fentanyl in there. And, uh, and a large portion of the illicitly sold marijuana also has fentanyl um, on it. So they may not know that they did it. So you shouldn't ascribe intent that they're lying to you. There's just a gap in the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter may be that they uh, smoke some some weed that happened to be laced in fentanyl, and that's a real probability. If it's fentanyl by itself, you don't just accidentally slip and fall and get fentanyl in your system. I mean, there's uh, there's a, there's a reality to to that piece, 
And with the, uh, the utilization of uh, naltrexone, that long-acting injectable, the interesting piece is the literature shows very clearly that if you're able to maintain um, abstinence for that seven to 10-day period, uh, and, I, and I don't mean somebody locked you in a house and didn't let you out in the world, but if you're out in the world and you were able to abstain for that uh, seven to 10 days, that at six months, it's equivalent to buprenorphine for outcomes. We don't have anything longer than that. But if you can't abstain for that period of time and you consistently have fentanyl in your system and that, buprenorphine or methadone is a better medication for you because your risk of mortality is, it doesn't change if you give them naltrexone at that point. And so, uh, so that's an important piece. They may really want naltrexone, but if they're not quite dopamine stable enough to have naltrexone and motivated enough to have naltrexone, it might not be the best drug for them in that in that phase of their treatment. Thanks, appreciate that. That uh, helps uh, make some more sense of of that uh, clinical situation I'm seeing um, uh, a little bit. But um, what you had said uh, a moment ago, just um, you know, don't ascribe motive um, or don't assume a patient's lying. Um, should you ever assume a patient's lying, um, or how would you handle that? Because I think. If it's written in the chart, history of substance use disorder, uh, that patient's historical um, report is going to be discounted heavily by most, um, honestly, yeah, I feel confident saying that, by most people um, in, in practicing medicine. Um, and I think it probably spills over, not just related to drug use, but you know, a lot of different things as well. So, um what happens? You think a patient's lying? Yeah, you know we're all taught like if somebody says they smoke a few cigarettes, just multiply that by two. We say that flippantly, right? You know, like I have a couple of drinks a week, and you're like, well, maybe yeah. it's ten. You know, and we it's a little bit of the uh, for lack of a better there probably are better terms, but I would prefer to use this one: the assholery of medicine uh, that allows us to feel like somehow we have superiority over somebody who has uh, the possibility of a disease entity. And the fact that they don't feel comfortable enough with us, to be honest. And so we somehow ascribe the intent of their lying to us for something against me, when in actuality, they just don't trust me enough with that information to be truthful. And so if we flip that whole script around and we recognize that, is there a way that I can build a better level of trust with them so that they feel comfortable being honest with me? Um, then that should be step one. Step two is they may just be so disappointed or frustrated or scared with the, what the reality is, is that they just don't want to say it out loud because it makes it more real. There's a real psychoanalytic reality to that, that, you know, no, I didn't use, I didn't use, I just, I didn't, I tried not to use, I didn't, you know, and, and so they really feel horrible for that. And, and they have, shame and guilt that goes with that, you know, in logarithmic scales. And so as we, uh, as we think about them, the way that we, that I document um, all of these things is the possibility of there being a gap between reality and what I'm seeing is, uh, um, is always a part of the diagnostic milieu. I mean, it's no different. I mean, just like you could say there was a lab error. This is no different. This is a, a truth error in a sense of, I, I don't really care why they're lying. I just have to think about if they are, because if they are, that may change the approach that I have. Now, the best way to get to that is not to confront them and not to push on them, but to make them trust you enough to be honest with you and say, look, I, I see evidence of this on this side, and I'm having a hard time figuring out why this lab result looks like this, but that the story does this. It's confusing because this is data. 
And this data is rarely wrong in that sense. So I'm trying to figure out how we get from what you're telling me to what this is and, and so that we can come up with the best plan for you. But saying, you know, I'm sick of you lying to me. Why do you think you have to lie to me? Those are all just horrible things to say to people who have a disease uh, that has already so much guilt and shame. And that's the last thing that you're going to be able to build trust on. Um, so I, I assume um, for safety reasons that any piece of information I get may be wrong. I assume that other doctors didn't do the right thing. Not because they probably didn't. They probably did. But my assumption has to be out of the box so that we don't make mistakes because you get that diagnostic type framing and then you miss things. And so what you don't wanna do is miss some of these other things uh, that are going on. And you know, so gaining that trust and, and being able to feel comfortable with the fact that they feel shame and guilt so they don't wanna tell you, you don't have to push on that. They know you know. I mean, and, and you don't have to beat that at home. You can just, it's a possibility just like that it was somebody else's urine right? Because they'll say, well, it obviously wasn't my urine. And you're like, well, all right, let's look at that. Did that get labeled correctly? Was it gathered correctly? Did it go to the lab with the appropriate label in the correct order? Did the lab have techniques for that? So there's a possibility of that, but it's really small compared to the possibility that Friday night you did something you feel frustrated about and, and you don't want to talk to me about it. So it's all just kind of diagnostic risks, um, you know, as, as we look at it. Another couple situations along these lines. Patients who are, are trying to manipulate their urine drug screen results um, through purchasing other people's urine. Uh, I've uh, a couple times now had people quite surprised that they were uh, positive um, for, say, fentanyl. Yeah. Um because it was fake urine and they hadn't uh, used any illicit opioids for you know a week or something but they were really nervous because the consequences of a uh, positive screen um, would really affect their life negatively and it's not like they the uh, criminal justice system is all that um, friendly or helpful i would say all the time uh yeah. to put it lightly it's a politically correct way to put it yeah <laughs> you know we treat poor people um, and people who have become poor uh, because of their addictions so terribly and just like, we're not helping them. We're just like, here, go back to jail and have more debt. Yeah, yeah good luck with this. That should, should make it all yeah, better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, that's sort of, uh, you know, this, you know, it's somebody else's urine thing. I just, I'm, I'm mentioning that because people, you know, do, you know, I guess, buy urine. There's probably a black market for it, uh, uh, maybe in medical schools. So yeah. don't do that uh, if you're a medical student with clean urine. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I think that it, it comes down to two things. So one, uh, we came up with a rule in our clinic. We're never going to fire anybody, no matter what. And so uh, because many times people will have patients sign a contract that says that if you're positive for these other drugs, I'm not going to I'm no longer going to be able to see you, which to me is unethical. It's, it, it just uh, it really maligns the beneficent side of, of, of medicine. Um, and, uh, and the other piece is that, you know, we treated patients with pregnant and parenting women and their spouses if they uh, and their significant others if they needed help. And we had many of the uh, guys would show up and give us urines of their female partners. And we had a lot of positive pregnancy tests for our male uh, uh, urines, which was uh, always kind of funny. Congratulations. You now have a uterus. <laughs> but the, uh, um, 
but but the reality is is that they're typically doing it because they feel like they're going to suffer some negative outcome. And if if you mitigate the negative outcome to the point of like, look, if it's not working, it's not working, and we need to figure out a better way. Do I need to increase the medicine that you're on? Do I need to change you to a different medicine? Do we need to add another therapy? Not if you're not doing this and you're not you know in for this, then I can't treat you because it's risk for me. That kind of weird conversation from from doctors is is just bothersome to me. But um, the answer is, you know, from the you know the ethical principle of autonomy, people can do things they want, man. And you just have to uh, figure out risk. If they go out on a Friday night and their life sucks mm-hmm. and they want to smoke some crack, I, it's not my job to judge. It's my job to present the risk matrix of this. So when they show up, if it's positive for cocaine, I'm like, what happened? And they're like, well, I was at a party and life sucks. So I just made a decision I'm not happy with. And I'm like, okay, well, how do we keep that from happening in the future? How do we work through to have a better risk risk evaluation? How do we How do we work through resilience and thinking about that? Not, well, you obviously don't care about your recovery. You know, because I, I hear these um, these approaches, and I think that recognizing the ethical principles um, and where and how our own assumptions and our own histories play into you know what we do to patients and with patients is really important, um, especially for the behavioral th- uh, you know areas. So psychiatry, addiction medicine, um, and even just if you're going to be working in uh, socioeconomically depleted portions of society. Um, especially if you're going to be working in those uh, with uh, different races, because structural racism is real and it lives in medicine no differently than it does in the legal system. So we have to really take great pains to to monitor how we interact with the subsets of um, patients in each of those categories and make sure that we're not using both implicit and explicit bias uh, to rule how we uh, uh, how we work with those. So it's important. It's an important piece. Appreciate that. Awesome. Here's a question about a 17-year-old male brought to the emergency department by his family after a seizure. He reports that he was out with his friends and smoked some weed about an hour prior to seeing his family. Family reports that when he returned, he was very agitated, hard to restrain, and was cursing at all of his family members. Approximately 10 minutes prior to arrival, he became unresponsive and had three minutes of seizure-like activity. In the ambulance, he was diaphoretic and difficult to arouse, but no further seizure-like activity was noted. On physical exam, he's tachycardic, hypertensive, and tachypnic, and his pupils are 3 millimeters and reactive with mild nystagmus. Which of the following is the most likely explanation for his symptoms? A. The marijuana was likely a synthetic cannabinoid. B. Marijuana is the likely culprit, as seizures are a common side effect. C. The patient had an allergic reaction to marijuana. Or D. The patient likely had concomitant marijuana and alcohol use. All right, so how would we approach that one? Yeah. So this is a first, this is a first order question. Yeah. It's not a second or third order question like we've talked about before. So basically this just um, is checking whether or not you know what utilization of certain substances has the potential to do for side effects, right? So uh, marijuana does not cause seizures. There are components, cannabidiol specifically um, in marijuana that is anti-seizure in its uh, pieces and is approved for such treatment um, for uh, specific syndromic seizures. Um, if you add alcohol to marijuana, you're not going to get agitated. You're going to get even sleepier. And then an allergic reaction doesn't look like this. 
um, an allergic reaction, you know, you have urticaria, um, you can have hypotension, you can have uh, erythema, swelling of the airway, kind of the normal kind of uh, histaminergic, you know, reactions that you would see. So you can easily just bounce through those quickly um, and get to synthetic cannabinoid. But the reality is synthetic cannabinoids, this is the question they're going to ask. It's an agitated, angry person who smoked, quote, marijuana um, and had a seizure. This is the question you're going to see. If they write this question, this is this is what they're going to do. Synthetic cannabinoids are um, JWH compounds. Uh, these are compounds that were made at Columbia University for testing the uh, endocannabinoid system. Uh, you have two basic receptors, CB1 and CB2. The CB1 is the more psychoactive receptor system internally. And the JWH compounds uh, were built to mimic THC, but it was tweaked each one of these. There are over 180 of these compounds. And um, as they show up into the ether of society, um, the DEA will then basically make them illegal. But until they show up, they can't make them a category one uh, because then you can't do research on this stuff. So, so they're still out there. And what they typically do is they'll soak potpourri or other random herbs, uh, typically the cheapest ones they can find, in this substance. Now, the problem is, is that some of these JWH compounds have a, a very high affinity for the uh, CB1 and can cause these side effects. And especially uh, there are some of those that have so, such high potency that it takes very little to do it. Yeah, most of these have never seen the light of day in human studies. Most of these have only seen the light of day in animal studies. And so they don't really know the side effect profile when they start spitting these out and soaking this stuff in it. So just know that synthetic cannabinoids um, wreak havoc on the uh, endocannabinoid system. And uh, when that happens, the question that they will ask on this is specifically around somebody who has the opposite reaction to marijuana despite smoking it, right? So they smoke, quote, marijuana, but then they have the opposite of what we normally do. They're not listening to the Doobie Brothers and chilling out. You know, they're actually... Um, fighting and having seizures and all this other stuff. And, and that's just in your brain, you should flip to synthetic cannabinoid, answer that and move on to the next question. Nice. So angry, agitated patients in a STEM with no history of uh, smoking weed, PCP on the boards? It is, but they won't present like this. Um, they won't tell you that they smoked marijuana. They won't curveball you. Gotcha. Um, they're going to they're gonna be pretty straightforward on on this. And the, uh, the agitated PCP patient is different than this because generally speaking, you don't have a seizure with PCP um, and uh, you're having hallucinations with PCP. So. Gotcha. All right, cool. Thanks again, as always. Appreciate it. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, you as well. Talk to you later, Patrick.